0: good rock and roll coming up for
1: you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly
0: everybody needs your attention. Erica M. Thanks much! Reinvention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode.
2: Just to think about like where we were and and how we broke out of it and where we went to.
1: It's it's amazing.
0: This is Erica M.'s Reinvention of the the VJ. VJ. Now, here's Erica M.
1: Hi there, I'm Erica M. And thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of my Reinvention of the VJ podcast. On today's show, I'm bending the rules a bit. Well, it's my show, I can do what I want. Reinvention of the VJ is supposed to be an up-close and personal conversation with all the on-air personalities at Music that you may have grown up with. But today, I'm deviating from that. It's okay, it's my show. My guest today was the host of YTV Rocks and Rock and Talk, where she, like me, was introducing videos and interviewing bands in the mid-80s. Her name back then was Lori Hibbard. Today, she's an author, she's a mom of two, uh, she's a broadcaster, and her name is Lori Gelman which she took on when she married the now famous producer of the Regis and Kelly show. Well, you know, not the Regis and Kelly show. Let's call it the (laughs) Kelly, (laughs) the Kelly and Seacrest show and Ryan show, Gelman. You know who I'm talking about. So on our show today, we get to talk about motherhood, broadcasting, parenting, writing, aging, all the good stuff. We are gonna have so much fun chatting today. I just know it. Of course, We're gonna compare our experiences from the 80s, but what really intrigues me is what happened after she left music television. Because it's that story of reinvention, of resilience, luck, self-worth, struggle, and lots of perspective. That's what intrigues me. So while my conversation with Lori will be a trip down memory lane, I'm hoping that more importantly, you find some interesting tidbits or insights into what it takes to get what you want in life, to reinvent and be creative, to deal with tough times, and maybe even redefine what success is for you. Ultimately, I'm hoping to inspire you and your choices in life. And for me, well, this is my passion project. For the last 14 years, I've been running one of Canada's largest platforms for moms. It's called ymc.ca. And I have a marketing agency that's called M&Co. And my job for the last 14 years has been connecting moms with brands but listen 14 years that's a long time even though i love what i do i'm hoping that this show may give me some food for thought while i consider what the next chapter of my life could look like so now let's get started from her home in manhattan please welcome Lori Gelman. Actually, you're not in Manhattan. I lied. Not right now. No. You're, <laughs> you're in the Hamptons. So from her home in the Hamptons, please welcome you. Lori Gelman to the reinvention of the VJ podcast. Lori, thank you so oh. much for joining me. Are you kidding me? You broke the rules
2: for me. I can't believe it. I'm so excited. I, it, this is such a great idea that just to think about like where we were and when and how we broke out of it and where we went to. It's,
1: it's amazing. Yeah, I think it's going to be um, hopefully well received. This is a an idea that I had because in my life, at least much music was a big part, partly because I was there for 13 years, Laurie. Wow. Um, I know it's a long time, three years <laughs> behind the cameras and then a decade in front of the cameras. And I was thinking about your experience, you were there for a shorter period of time, but certainly at the same time as me. Mm -hmm. So if you could tell me between on a scale of one to 10, how important was your time back then on YTV to you today?
2: Well, it started everything. So it was extremely important. I mean, it was, it launched me from being, uh, you know, a, a kid who was waitressing to Uh, hosting a national music show. It was, well, we national we think. I mean, YTV used to be so small. We were like the underdogs for so many years, but it was was everything. It was my start in the business. It was uh, my launching pad to get a job in Miami, which led me to New York and my husband. And I mean, it just, I can't imagine what it would have been like if I hadn't gotten the job at, at YTV. I mean, it was a training ground of epic proportion for me anyway.
1: So people don't just get hired because they say, oh, pick me. (laughs) There's a lot of work behind that that leads up to it. So I know you went to Ryerson.
2: I went to Ryerson. Wait a
1: second. You just made a face. I'm looking at you because we're doing this interview on Zoom. And I said it takes a lot of work. And you were like,
2: eh. Tell me. Well, no, my story is a little different. Just I, I got so lucky. I mean, yes, I went to Ryerson for journalism. And my, my goal in life was to be um, an international correspondent for McLean's magazine. I wanted to be a magazine writer. I wanted to. This was this was the goal. And then um, I got a summer job at uh, CKFM Radio in Toronto. And during that time. It's just, it was It was. everything was meant to be. Um, Maureen Holloway was on the air at the time, and I wasn't, I was newsroom grunt. And she was uh, stuck in traffic on the DVP one day and she uh, had to pull over and call from a gas station and call the office and say, um, I have this interview with the, the president of YTV, this new kids network that's starting. I can't, I'm not gonna make the interview. Here are the questions, can you do the interview for me? And I said, sure. And I did the interview with Kevin Shea and, at the end of it he said you know are you happy here and do you think you want to come work at ytv it changed my life like it's i wish i could say i worked really hard for it but it it just happened it fell in my lap i mean that was after two years of like real grunt work at ckfm i have to say that i was like basically the dog that people kick when they're mad i was just the worst low man on the totem pole job but uh, i went from that job to you know, on the air every day and having my hair and makeup done and people carrying what I wore and stuff like that. It was, it was, it was a really big step, a really big switch up.
1: But you must have, there must be a core of something to who you are, Lori, to be thrown into this interview with the president of YTV with next to no warning. What, uh, like, is there a superpower that you can pinpoint that you have that has served you well throughout your life and throughout your career?
2: I want, my first instinct is to say luck, but luck doesn't get you everywhere. Um, I was lucky to you know, be in the right place at the right time, but I also impressed the man that I needed to impress in order to take the next step. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, me, why TV? Of course, in my back of my head, I was like, man, I'd really love to go and you know, work there and do what because I'd read all about it because I was, you know, cramming for this interview. I had about 10 minutes notice and I, you know, part of me was like, I would love to do that, but I'm not a person that puts it out there in the universe expecting for it to come back. I wish I was, but I'm not. So, you know, I wouldn't even speak it out loud, but in my back of my head, I was like, you know, afterwards, maybe I'll see if he, you know, somebody is, they're hiring. And he asked me before I asked him. So. But so you're saying
1: your superpower is luck.
2: Well, it kind of, I feel like I've always been in the right place at the right time, you know, and then, well, then luck stops at a certain point and you just sort of, you know, real life takes over. But I think that um, I was determined, I was ambitious, but things came very easily in the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, in the 80s, when you and I were both on the air, Mm-hmm. We would see each other at junkets and stuff. So, like, we were in the same kind of scene together, young women, you know, kind of trying to make it in the world of broadcasting. And I remember my days at Munch were chaotic. Um, The scene at Munch was chaotic. We would do these live interviews, phones were ringing, people were walking around in the background. What was it like for you? What was sort of the vibe at YTV like? Like you mentioned you got your hair done. You got your makeup done. I'm like, (laughs) I did. we got nothing like that. So tell me about what it was. Nothing. No, no, no. We we were told to pick our own outfits. We had to find, we had to pay for our own outfits. Oh yeah. It was all like we were on our own. Yeah. So obviously different from you. Tell me what was it like for you?
2: It, it wasn't like that. I mean, I came in as I'd never worked in television, so I didn't know any better, but yeah, you were, you were put in to hair and makeup and they gave you a wardrobe and they gave you a script and you know, they, this was the first year, the first year it was very bumpy because we were stupid new guys, all of us. And when uh, YTV rocks went on the air, there were five hosts and uh, we were all young and it was everybody's first time on television. So it was, it was kind of a joke. So I really think they had to, um, keep us in a cocoon and sort of gently place us in the studio and tell us what to say and tell us what to, to do. And, and it wasn't until, I think after two years of YTV Rocks, they gave me my own show. Cause again, I am ambitious and I was lucky enough to have producers who saw that I was ready to take the next step and to not be a part one of five. You know, one of five is, is really tough when you're hosting a show. It's really hard to be one of many. It's hard to be one of two. You really have to have a rhythm. Yeah, it was, it was, you were very well taken care of at YTV.
1: They could not have been kinder. Let's talk about this transition from one of five to one to hosting your own show, Rock and Talk. Mm -hmm. Would you say luck was involved there or was there something a little more um, weighty involved in that transition?
2: Like, was I the Lizzie Borden of YTV? I just packed them all <laughs> off one after the other, get, get them out of my way to make it. Um, there was a little bit, I think there was a little bit of that. I was very ambitious. I mean, I was working with people who were still in high school, some of them. And I just, you know, I, I knew that their path wasn't going to be mine. I was in my career. I was ready to go. So I think that was obvious to a lot of people, um, Nobody lost a job because of me, but they just sort of spun me off into a different direction. And that's when things really took off for me. I mean, you have to realize when we were at YTV, we looked at you guys as much as like the superstar powerhouse people. We just, we got your scraps and your leftovers and we were lucky if anybody came by our studio and lucky if if anybody agreed to even be interviewed by us. So you guys were, you know, you were the gold, gold standard And that was, you know, my whole time at YTV, like my next step was like, I'm going to much. That's what I'm doing. That's my next step. And, you know, I I just, I wasn't that girl. You know, you guys had, you were all so cool. You had like you with your hats and Natalie Renard, like all of them were just, everybody was just so rock and roll. And we were, you know, fresh faced, young, you know, innocent. I I can't even explain it, but we were not, we were not uh, worldly or rock and roll at all.
1: Was music an important part of your life back then, or were you a broadcaster first?
2: I was a broadcaster first. That's where, that's where my training was. Um, I quickly learned about music and learned how much I loved music. That's one of the best things about the job, is you really, it's on-the-job immersion into this incredible thing that, um, it, it, you know, you, you listen to the radio and you watch MTV or whatever it is you watch, YTV, um, much, But when you actually start to get immersed and you read the articles about these artists and what they did and what their lyrics mean, and, and, you know, it was just it was a really great transition for me. It really, I mean, I I was like, I used to read the news, the news, the news. And then I started just reading Rolling Stone and Entertainment Weekly and stuff like that. And it just, it took me to another place.
1: You did a gazillion interviews. Way, mo- way more than me. Like, I you guess think? because, well, you, yeah, because your show rock and talk was all about interviews and at much, yeah. I was one of six. So the, the interviews were spread out amongst us, but you did them all. And I remember you being on like every freaking junket that there was a junket <laughs> being, being flown from Toronto to cities all over, usually North America to interview yeah. stars of, uh, some music, lots of film and TV. Yeah. So basically you were learning on the job, as, as you mentioned, and I wondered, what would you say are the most important things about conducting interviews?
2: The first thing I learned was not to talk over people while they're talking, because it was a, it was a brutal first lesson. I think on my, it was my first interview, I think it was with Keanu Reeves, and it was during the Toronto Film Festival, and I was—I asked him questions, and when he answered, I go, "Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh." And I thought my producer was going to kill me. She said, "Because this is unusable. You know, this is not a conversation. You have to stop talking when they're talking." So it was—that was a great lesson to learn, and something I—it—it it, it didn't even occur. I was like, "Oh gosh, yeah, you're right. I have to shut up and and actually listen to the answer, and not wait. You know, I can't wait to tell you my next thing and what's, what's most important thing I'm going to say." Um, That was probably the biggest lesson. Also, nobody's who they seem. Like everybody's, everybody has their stuff, and everybody. I mean, you you know, you're you're so excited to meet somebody, and then you meet them, and it's kind of like, oh, you know, it's not as great as I thought it was going to be. I saw. Actually, I was thinking about this. I watched your interview with Kurt Cobain, and I thought at the time like that would have been one of the most intimidating interviews to do. I, I never, I never. Mick Jagger was the toughest I ever had, but. But I thought that would be so intimidating. And how did you
1: keep his attention? Well, there was a strategy there. Really? Oh, yeah, there was a strategy. When I when I found out that I was going to be sent to Seattle to interview Kurt Cobain, I was a little nervous because I heard that he was a really difficult interview. He doesn't like authority. He doesn't like mainstream media. And I, to some degree, could be uh, seen as mainstream. So the first thing I did was when he walked into the hotel room, because as you know, junkets are often done in hotel rooms, which is the most boring background. And so I said to him when he walked in, Hi, my name's Erica. Would you like to do the interview in the bed or on the balcony? And I said that to don't <laughs> I, I, I did it on purpose, Lori, because I wanted him to see me. I wanted him to have to think of what I just said and have an answer for me. And I remember him looking really uncomfortable and saying, uh, on the, on the balcony. And I was like, sure, no problem. And so we set up outside. <laughs> and of course there's that, you know, the beautiful background of Seattle that everybody now knows from that interview. Uh, and then I continued on that path, which was I asked questions that I felt would speak to his humanity rather than the typical rock star, tell me about how you wrote that song. So I I tried to pull in other things, like I knew that he read. So I asked him what he was reading and that kind of lit him up. And so the kinds of questions that I asked, I, I put them heavy at the top, the sort of life questions, so that he became invested in the conversation. And then the ones that are a little more, music oriented, I already had earned his trust. And so he gave me better answers for those. Oh, as I'm well. sure he did. My yeah. gosh, that's a yeah. great, that's great. Was that your idea? Yeah, of course. Uh, another Fantastic. thing that much music was that no one ever helped you. You were oh. really on your, your <laughs> producers, the producers had their job, which was mostly post-production. They would set things up and then they would do the editing and, but the actual interview, no one ever helped me. And I say that
2: research and no, all myself,
1: all myself. And so it, you know, it made me tough and, uh, it, it gave me a thick skin and, uh, and I'm sort of a one woman machine because of it. Yeah, definitely. And It's interesting because your career also was different because you, the jobs that you then took were more working for a broadcaster and I went off more as sort of an independent shit disturber. If you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell me, how did you end up leaving YTV, which was a great job? You had your own show. What happened?
2: Oh my gosh, it was—I had been there for four years. I loved it. Um, it was a great job. I mean, we were in our twenties. Come on, it was so much fun. It was—it sets you up for a little bit of disappointment for the rest of your life because. I mean, it was just nonstop fun, um, but I was I was looking for a job in the U.S. I knew I wanted to go. Um, I knew I wanted to go to Los Angeles. That was my my big. But uh, I got an agent, and she sent my tape to Miami, and the for for a sports job to be a sportscaster. So I took the meeting because I wanted to go to Miami, and at the end of the interview, I he said, you know. I don't know if you're a sportscaster, and I said I am definitely not a sportscaster, <laughs> especially in a town like Miami, and uh, like where you really have to like you want to be a female sportscaster, you got to know your stuff. You really do. You can't walk in there and fake it. Um, and he said, "Well, I really want to hire you. So what what do you do?" And I said, "Well, I was I was at YTV. I, I introduced videos and and, and interviewed um, you know celebrities." And he's like, "All right, good. Let's do it." And that again, lucky. <laughs> Do you know what I mean. The luck comes in there. Um, I'm good in the room. I, I, I'm a lot of energy and enthusiasm when I when I start something. So that is uh, that. I got the job offer, and then, as legend has it, and I've heard this from a couple of people, there was a big a shareholders meeting because I just went back to YTV. I didn't have a contract. I just back to YTV. I said I, I'm leaving. I got a job in Miami, and. I guess they were, had the shareholders meeting or whatever. And somebody stood up and said, who the hell let Lori Hibbert just walk out of here after four years of us, like building her up and making her the face of YTV. And they were all just sort of like, I, cause they didn't even, it didn't even occur to them that I would ever go anywhere until I absolutely aged out of the job, you know?
1: So you moved to Miami. That's brave. I think
0: yes,
1: you don't, exactly. you don't know anybody. You no. were quite young. And you had a job, but I'm guessing nothing else. So tell me what that time was like.
2: It was transitional. I mean, you really are moving. You feel like you're on the moon, you know, when you're, when you move somewhere. So completely the opposite of, of Canada. Um, I went down there. I I found an apartment. I, I mean, again, here's with where my luck comes in you know, the boss hired me, they gave me my own office, they gave me like a producer that it was just it was, you know, for local news. Um, and I just, I, I just sort of grew into it. I mean, it was it was pretty uh, exciting at first. I mean, I really, uh, i would never had so much freedom, everybody was usually like, you know, propping me up. So all of a sudden, everything was like, what are you going to do today? I'm like, I don't know, what should I do? And they're like, well, it's up to you. You've got, you know." Four minutes to fill on the ten o'clock news, so you better do something. So that was that was an interesting, um, an interesting time. But I should say that when I moved to Miami, a month later, Hurricane Andrew hit and decimated the entire south of Florida. It was just it was awful. So we went on twenty four hour broadcasting, emergency broadcasting, and so you had a um, a shift. You were either uh, four in the afternoon till four in the morning, or four in the morning till four in the afternoon. And you would go down there and you would get helicoptered to, helicoptered to like homestead or, you know, wherever like the, the story was that day. And you would do your story and then you would, you know, go back to the station and you would. I, my, my, I had a lot of like reading messages that people were trying to find people. So, you know, Glenn, Glenn Cove, you know, hey, your, your sister's fine and she's in Boynton Beach. And, you know, that was sort of because I wasn't really a news reporter. And they sent me down to do one thing because um, I kept saying, like, put me in their coach. Let me do something, you know. And then I guess I went down to do something about the Marines coming to help. And as soon as I saw the, the helicopter landing, I'm doing a live shot and I burst into tears. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so the boss was like, yeah, you, you can't do hard news. Sorry. Get back to get back to the entertainment. Wow,
1: that's crazy.
2: It was a great learning. That, that was incredible experience because you were just on the air. It was like being on radio. You were, just had a live mic and you just had to keep
1: saying stuff. Well, that was like much music. Yeah, it that's, really was. <laughs> That's what we did is just nonstop talk. Yeah. Four hours every day and live. That's what we did. So you were in Miami. You had these interesting experiences. You <laughs> were finding Lori's voice when did you meet your husband?
2: Um, I interviewed him in December of 1993. Regis was uh, Regis Philbin, who was the host of his his show, uh, was coming down to be the grand marshal of the Fort Lauderdale Boat Parade, and we were the station that was uh, sponsoring the parade, and I was the reporter um, tasked with interviewing Regis. So I went to his hotel room because God knows everything takes place in a hotel room. And I interviewed Regis, and then um, Gelman was there with him, with his ponytail and his glasses. And I didn't really know that much about him. I, I, but I was like, oh, I should interview him too. He's, you know, he's part of the show. So I interviewed him, and I'm not a word of a lie. We've been together since the day we met. We've been together since that day. What happened? Is it weird.
1: It is. Well, it's sweet. <laughs> I'm it's... a really good interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yes. What happened? Tell me about it. Like, how did you interview someone and then end up marrying him? Like, how did, what happened during that interview? Or what is it that happened?
2: Well, I mean, I have to say Regis had a little bit of something to do with it because he always, you know, was trying to get Michael to do, you know, to, you know, oh, Gellman, she's cute. And, you know, Kathy Lee can't last forever. And so you oh, know, he like he, say- he was
1: looking to, to replace, uh, like for you to host.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's because he thought every girl wanted the job beside him, which, you know, pretty much everybody did, you know, it was, it was a great job. And, but Kathy Lee wasn't going anywhere first. Like she was, she was entrenched in that show. And um, he would just wanted to, you know, nudge Michael and give him a hard time. So for whatever reason, he chose me. He was, you know, when he was in, he goes, oh my God, Lori Hibbard's here. Nobody told me Lori Hibbard was going to be here. Gelman, this is huge. This is huge. So, you know, that kind of thing um, started. And then we we did the boat parade. And then he came back to this, like, big party we were having at the hotel. And Michael was with him. And uh, we were all just sort of schmoozing around. And then someone said, hey, let's go out to Confetti's, which was this old nightclub in Fort Lauderdale. And... God, I don't know if I should tell you this story, but I may as well. Um, Miss Teen Florida was at the party as well. And she had hooked her arm right around Michael. Even though Michael was talking to me, she came over and she was, and then she took my, and I, have, I have no interest in competing with Miss Teen Florida for anything ever. Thank you. Um, so I, uh, I said, oh, you guys go ahead. I'm fine. And Michael said, no, I want you to come. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's good. He goes, no, really, Lori, come. And then Miss Team Florida sort of went, well, maybe I won't come. And Michael said, all right, see you later. (laughs) So at that point, I knew we liked each other. And it just, we stayed up till like five in the morning talking. We talked about skiing and we talked about everything. I mean, our whole lives, basically. But skiing was the big thing because it was something we both loved to do. And, you know, he called me the next day and he sent me flowers a week later. And then it just, it just happened. We, we kept in touch and I wasn't looking to go to, I wasn't looking for a job. First of all, I had a great job. I loved Miami. I wasn't looking to go to New York for sure. I, I really wanted to go to Los Angeles if I was going to go anywhere. And um, four months later, I got a job offer in New York, you know, without even really going
1: for it. What? Wait, stop. Out of the blue, you yes. got a job offer in New York.
2: I know. Well, it was. I went. Well, I, I had to go audition. Obviously, I, like I went up for an audition. I didn't think it was going to be anything, and I was so surprised when they when they hired me. I couldn't believe it. And that was the uh, talk show with Tom Bergeron, where I on um, FX. So that was my next leap. But the funny thing was, Michael and I had been dating for maybe five months, four months, four months, and then I called him one day and I said, "You know what? I, I'm moving to New York. I got a job offer." And he was like, he was like. What? What? Oh, you're not moving here for me, are you? And I said, no, asshat. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm no idiot. I'm living here for the six-figure job. Like you know. So he really choked at first because he was worried that I was coming just to be with him. But when he realized I had a legitimate offer, and then you know, when I once I moved here, we were 100% full time. And then seven quick years later, he asked me to marry him.
1: Okay, so you were together for (laughs) seven years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But that, you know, it's interesting when you said to me at the top of the show that luck has played a large part in your life, that usually irks me. I usually challenge people on that, to tell you the truth, because I feel like most of us make our own luck. But- Oh yeah,
2: the harder you work, the luckier you get. That's what I used to say. Yeah. yeah,
1: Except, Laura, you got to horseshoe up your ass. I know.
2: (laughs) I know I'm
1: Girl. extremely lucky. <laughs>
2: I mean, sometimes I think my luck sort of ran out, but then
1: I started writing books and I got lucky again. Wait a so, second, you know, your your luck didn't run. Let's go back. Don't don't jump okay. ahead here because I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You you did this. You okay? You were in New York, living in New York, and then you eventually married Michael or Gelman. Mm-hmm. Gelman. Gelman. Mm-hmm. You you converted. You're you're a fellow Jew now. I am a member of the tribe. Yeah. What the hell happened ha- What happened? Why did you why did you do that? That's a well, huge that's a huge commitment.
2: It was it was huge and it was one of the top 3 things I've ever done in my life, truthfully. The journey I took was phenomenal and fantastic and I never for one second have regretted it. But at the time I was dating Michael and I was working, you know, at uh, FX and he was doing the show and we were having this great time five years. And I knew just based on stories, he told me that I would never be able to bring up marriage. Like it has to be his idea or it isn't a good idea. So I knew that no matter what, where we were, what was going on, I had to like never say anything about anything, which I never did. And so we were in Mexico and we were visiting a friend of his and she took us out for dinner. And then finally she's like, all right, I just have to say this. Gelman, what's it going to take for you to marry this girl? And for the first time, these words came out of his mouth. Well, I can't marry a girl who isn't Jewish. And I was like, what? That's like a second date thing. That's not a five years in. He had never said that to, to me or in my earshot to anybody else. So this, this girl looks at me and she said, well, are you willing to convert? And I, I couldn't. I mean, it was so shocking at that time. You know, I grew up Catholic and I grew up super Catholic, you know, we went to church and, you know, the whole, I was an altar girl. And there was, so it it was an interesting moment when I sort of had to, I I, I said, well, I'll think about it. I said, it's definitely something I'll think about. That sort of made him feel better. So we did a little, uh, what do I want to say? What's the word? Due diligence, I guess, together. Um, It was after we did the introduction to Judaism classes. And I realized when you really start picking it apart and looking at it, there's only one major difference between Catholics and Jews. And if you can get past that, then you're going to be okay. Because what I loved about the things I learned about the Jewish faith is is the whole philosophy that it centers around the mother and at home. And it's always leave a place better than you found it and just do the best you can do, question everything. It, it, I mean, it just, it, it was it was revolutionary for me. It opened my eyes to so many things. And the first time I ever went to a temple, to a service, um, I bawled my eyes out because I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Because it, it's kind of a it's kind of a a fix because I took I went with my whole class that was I was taking the class with, and they take you to B'nai Jesuit, which is this amazing temple on the Upper West Side where they sing and dance in the aisles. They kind of alluded to it in. Um, in that movie, Keeping the Faith with Ben Stiller. Do you remember when he played the rabbi and Ed Norton played the ca- the priest? No? Oh, I've got to really, see it. I, I've never oh, seen really it. You really should.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: it's, it, it was, it's the, they had this joyful congregation and, and that's basically what I went to. And I couldn't believe there were people dancing in the aisles and singing. And it was just, you know, and nothing I'd ever seen before. So uh, I said, yeah, I think I can do this.
1: So is when did he actually ask you to get married? Before you started taking the classes, or once you completed it? Once I completed it, <laughs> you'd love
2: him, Erica. He's <laughs> like he will—he will stand you down. He will stare you in the face just to just to get it done. Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, he did that. But I ended up studying for like a year and a half to become Jewish, um, and then I had to do you know, a mikvah and you have to like, stand in front of the congregation and denounce your Catholicism, it's it's a real journey. I mean, there's there's a lot to be going on. There's lots of reading done and meeting with the rabbi, but I did my mikvah a month before we got married. So I was just finishing things up when, so he had asked me to marry him while I was studying. Which is very nice of him when you think about it.
1: So I would venture to say, people say that, you know, that behind every great man is like a greater woman because you're there for when those great people are not great, when they're feeling weak, you are the support system that no one else gets to see. So tell me, what role do you play in, in his life? Because you're not a pushover.
2: No, no, I'm not. Um, I feel like a lot of times I'm the wind beneath his wings, you know I mean, here's what happens when you have kids is you have to make a decision. Of how much further in your career you're going to go, 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 or are you going to step back and you know be everybody's support system? And I ended up doing that after I had my second child. I decided I was going to stay home. I mean, before that, I was I was his equal partner. We went to things together. We were always out doing, being, and it was lots of fun. Um, but when I stepped out and and decided to be a mother, it's 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 a tough it's a tough step and. You have to go through a lot of attitude adjusting to realize that you your only reason to get up in the morning is to make sure the kids get off to school and Michael gets off to work and everybody's happy and then you close the door and, and your day is yours. But what are you doing? You're not going to work. You're gonna you're gonna clean the house and you're gonna go get the dry cleaning and you're gonna make sure everybody has a dentist appointment. I mean, it, it, it's a it's a real like uh, turn. What did that do to your head? It messed me up for a while just because you you, um, we would go to parties and, you know, people forget so quickly, like what you used to do. And so they'd be like, so what do you do? And I said, and I used to literally say nothing. I, I go, I do nothing. And it used to make Michael so mad. He's like, I hate when you say you do nothing. He said, even if you're not working full time, you're still doing this, you're still doing this. You're still, you know, so he was always, you know, trying to, to build me up, but it really is. I mean, he is in a business where nobody, I, nobody cares unless you're the person in front of the camera. I am literally asked to stand aside. Ma'am, could you please stand aside so many times in a photo line because they want to get a shot of Michael and Kelly together, you know?
1: Oh, I can't imagine. I think I I was thinking about that, that how I would feel uh, having, and I thought it was interesting that you changed your, you took his name, you changed your name. And I thought that was, that was, that's a huge statement to, because you put a lot of years into building up the name Lori Hibbert, and suddenly, you know, the the person Lori Gelman emerges, and no one knows who she is.
2: Right. You know, it's funny. The day I had my name changed, and it was important to Michael that I changed my name because he wanted it to be a, us to be a family unit, and and I really didn't mind. Um, but I remember trading in my. ID. I I had to go someplace. It wasn't the DMV, but it was someplace like that. So, and I traded in my ID and she gave me something back and she said, that's it. No more Lori Hibbard. And just those words, I was like, wow, that was when it hit me more than, you know, just the the process of doing it didn't bother me as much as hearing that. No more Lori Hibbard. She's gone.
1: You realize that our lives crossed. I mean, really crossed. Because I had created a show for Life Network in the year 2003 to 2005, and it was called Yummy Mummy. I remember it it was a parenting show for modern mothers, and it was we shot 26 episodes of it. It was shot against a green screen. It was super expensive because there was animation, kind of like Pee Wee Herman's Great Adventure. Yeah, it was a little kooky. And then the show after 26 episodes was canceled and they replaced it with a show called The Mom Show, starring- I did not know
2: that, that I did not know that. Yes, that's okay, <laughs> it's fine,
1: that's, that's show business. nothing, um, I hated you, but you know. Um, I... <laughs> stand in line, stand in line. But um, when you hosted that show in Toronto, you were living in New York, you were married with kids. How yeah. the hell did you do that?
2: It was, again, lucky that they realized I had a limited amount of time that I could spend uh, in Toronto. So I would fly in Monday morning at you know 5 a.m., 6 a.m. I'd take the flight and um, be in, in the studio taping at 9. So we'd tape three shows one day and three shows on Tuesday and then two shows on Wednesday and I would get on a plane at noon on Wednesday and be home um, by like three o'clock in the afternoon. So I only missed Monday and Tuesday really, and I saw the I saw everybody Wednesday afternoon when I got home. And that was and that was only ten weeks of the year that I did that. So it, they made it as as easy as possible. I mean, it was a real hail mary because it, anything could have happened. I was flying during the winter. I was flying during summer. You know, thunderstorms, but I never missed a show,
1: which is, I thought was incredible. Well, how did you do that? Because your husband works. So how did you manage that?
2: Um, I had an amazing um, babysitter who came and she didn't live. I mean, Michael's a really hands-on dad. So, you know, anything that he could do, he would do. But for the time that during the day that he was at work and, and uh, I was in Canada, he would, um, we would hire this woman and she would come in and she was amazing. Like she was just great. And the kids loved her. It
1: wasn't a perfect solution. There is you no, know, but it was there's no such thing as perfection, Lori. Yeah. You no, know, know, it's, it's, a, you have to give and take and, you know, you got to make things happen. And, you know, one of the things that really bugs me about being a mother was this, uh, feeling of guilt that we put on ourselves. Oh where we're not doing enough for our kids, but at the same time, we're resentful because we don't have a life because we do everything for our kids. So how did you deal with those feelings of guilt because you pursued your career, which somewhat impacted your kids?
2: It definitely impacted them. I mean, they hated seeing me, you know, they knew Sunday night when they woke up Monday morning, I wasn't going to be there. I'd always leave them, you know, notes and uh, at where they were going to sit at breakfast. Uh, you, you, you deal with the guilt by, I don't want to say not dealing with it, but you realize how much it's feeding your soul to be away from them and doing something you love. So it almost makes you better when you come back you're, you're more willing to sit on the rug and play shoots and ladders or whatever, you know, whatever it is they want to play or make believe or tea party. Um, you, I used to, I used to love those days away. I mean, leaving was hard, but once I got there and I had two nights of full sleep to myself and, you know, I would call them and I would, you know, um, try to talk to them as much as I could, but I, I mean, probably shouldn't say that, but I, It fed me. It it saved me. As a matter of fact, I think that I was a much better mother because I was able to get away once in a while.
1: You told your kids that when they would beg you to stay home, you explained that you couldn't because you were doing a show that was helping moms become better moms. Yes, (laughs) which I thought was (laughs) what else was I going to (laughs) say? But I think that's a good way of explaining that show. And I I do think like when I did my Yummy Mummy show and then launched. My website, YMC, which was, by the way, at that same time, I oh, launched. I launched. Oh yes, that's how long I've been doing it. In two thousand and six, I launched YMC. I know your jaw is dropping, but that's how uh, long I just I can't been believe do- you
2: were doing that. How old were your kids, though?
1: Josh was born in two thousand, and Jesse was two thousand and three. So our kids are are around the same age. They are. Yeah. yeah. Well, we also got married. I got married in the end of ninety nine. So you and I are sort of on the same Wow. What a <laughs> yeah. like Yes, I know. That's why I wanted to do this interview and break all the rules because there were too many sort of synchronicities with how we have chosen to live our lives, right? A lot of a lot yeah. of parallels. Yeah. Um, so what I wanted to ask you though, now your kids are grown for the most part. They're kind of baked. 16
2: and 19.
1: Yeah. So, and mine are 16 and 20, almost 17. So like, we're kind of, uh, they're, they're, they're baked. Our kids are baked at this yeah. point. You hosted a show on motherhood for a few years. So what advice do you give new moms now, knowing everything that you know, you've been exposed to great thinkers on parenting. You are a parent, you have parented, you see the results. What kinds of things do you tell new parents?
2: Gosh, I haven't given anybody parenting advice in so long just because my friends are all older and nobody has a baby anymore. And I'm trying to think what some of my best tips used to be like, you know, the, the, I mean, it sounds, you know, oh, don't forget time for yourself. And well, you and were living like that.
1: that you were. That's what you were saying is that it's an important yeah, that's an important piece. It was
2: it, But it sounds like something. Oh, take care of yourself. Get lots of sleep. I mean, there's. it seems like a useful thing to say, but you have to be a little bit selfish. But wait a Even second. Though,
1: you weren't because
2: I was but I you went to Canada for 3 days a week for 10 weeks.
1: Yeah, for but then you stayed home with your kids. I mean, for you
2: 42
1: weeks. <laughs> yeah. But for how long did you choose to give up your career and be full-time stay-at-home mom? How many years?
2: Um, well, I considered the mom show was part of my stay-at-home time because I was home 42 weeks of the year. I sort of made that in my head. So, I I mean, I've been home ever since. I never did get another job. I never did take another full-time job.
1: So 16
2: years, 17 years.
1: Why not? Why didn't you look for another job? And by the way, zero guilt and not that you should have. Okay. Just so you know, I'm not asking you because I think that women should work. I don't. I think women, I think women should do what they want to do, that's what choice is. that's what feminism is, right? is living the life that you want. So why didn't you why didn't you want to go back to work?
2: um i was I was enjoying my life. i um, would exercise every day. I could't have time to read i I loved taking care of my family. I loved dropping the girls off at school and, you know, like, I'll see you at three o'clock and knowing that I would be there to pick them up as well. And, and I'd have this, you know, really nice day. And I'll have to say, like, it, there's something very liberating about not worrying about the money, not, you know, worrying, you know, you know, about pleasing my boss or being there on time or whatever, when you, your day is your own, it really, you can get a lot done and I would feel productive. And the only time it would hurt, honestly, is when we would go out and it was, and I'm telling you, Erica, nobody wants to talk to Gelman's wife. Like nobody cares what I have to say because I'm not. It's all about right now who you are, you know, and what what have you done lately? And and you become sort of invisible if you let yourself. And that's and again, and I'm jumping ahead, but that's why I decided finally to write a book because I need I I couldn't just be the mom helping in the classroom anymore, or you know, the best I used to like spend hours making monkey face cupcakes because they they're the biggest seller at the bake sale and I just it was like an important job for me I knew I had to like make money for the school it was the things that you you know put on yourself that you think are now important and and that feeds you and makes you feel like you know you're doing something and you're and you're contributing but I, I I always thought being home was the best use of my time for my girls making sure that I was there for them you know they walk in the apartment and the first thing they go is mom just because they wanna know your home. You know, it's the first thing that, that uh, I always hear
1: when they come home, it, to this day, actually. So now you are author, Lori Gelman. Author, yeah. So tell that me about came that. out of nowhere. Well, did it come out of nowhere?
2: Um, well, it did and it didn't. I decided I wanted to be creative. I, I, you know, you, if you're a creative person, you can't hold it down for too long. And um, I finally decided I was blogging a bit and I was doing some things with Baby Center and with um, a couple of magazines. But um, I I realized I wanted to write a book and I thought, oh, I'll write a children's book because that'll be easy. Like they'll they'll print anything. There's so much crap out there. (laughs) And so I wrote a book called Two Weeks Till My Birthday. And it was about a little girl who was turning eight and her mother had given her permission to... Um, think of her own birthday party theme and what she wanted for her birthday party. And it became the most anxious two weeks of her life. Like she couldn't sleep because she was worried. Like, what if my friends don't like it? What if nobody comes? Who likes chocolate? Who likes vanilla? Like what games are we going to play? She she becomes very anxious. And then um, she has this big talk with her mom. And you realize that, you know, you have to just do the party for you that you want to throw. And then if people love you, they'll come no matter what kind of ice cream you're going to serve. It was and that was—I um, thought that was genius. I really did. I thought it was just like the best book, and I couldn't wait. And we—I I went to my husband's agency because you need an agent. You can't just. If people ask me this all the time. You have to have an agent. I—it's. You can try to self-publish, but if you want it to get steam and go anywhere and have any sort of win behind it, you have to have, um, you know, you, the establishment behind you, basically. So I—I I took it. I got an agent through my my husband's agent. And then I, uh, he sent it out and 46 rejections came back faster than I could believe. And not one nice thing was said about this book. It was like, it's this, it's, and it was never like the same. It wasn't, the criticisms weren't all the same. It wasn't like, oh, you know, she, she, you know, her main character isn't likable. It was, everything had a different you know reason for not wanting this book so I was like wow okay well and I was literally thinking well that's that I, I don't care if I ever do that again because that was excruciating and then I was having lunch with my agent and I was telling him this story because I was I was a class mom at the time and I was so freaking frustrated by these like juvenile parents who can't take responsibility for anything and you know you, you send out an email and nobody mails you back and I'm you know, telling him all this. And he was laughing and he said, that's your book. And I said, why would I write about that? Why would I write about something that annoys the crap out of me all the time? And he said, just go home and see if you can write the first 20 pages. No, but what's the answer?
1: Why would you write something that annoys the crap out of you?
2: (laughs) Because you write what makes you passionate, not necessarily what makes you sing. I mean, it could be, it could be something that makes your heart sore. But if it's something that like, creates a reaction in you, either a good one or a bad one. And you just, you get it out there and that's where your creativity, you know, comes out. I had a great time writing the first book. It was, it was so cathartic. (laughs) I think you wrote it in
1: Starbucks. Is
2: that? I wrote it in Starbucks at 88th and Broadway. Yep. Every day, every single day, because what I learned is that the only way to write a book is to actually sit down and write the stupid book. You can't, say you're writing a book and sit down once in a while and you know let your fingers cross over the, uh, the keyboard, you have to, like a job, you have to show up every day on time and sit there. And even if you don't do anything except correct punctuation in whatever you've written, you've got to do it every day.
1: But why didn't so you do I did. it at your home? You've got a beautiful home. I do, but I, I was every time, I don't know if
2: you, when, especially because I had you know little kids at the time um, or medium-sized kids, I guess, there's so much to do and all i saw in the house was all the things that needed to be done so i couldn't get myself out of that and it was too easy to stop and go to the fridge or stop and you know fold laundry or make a bed or whatever it like i needed i knew i needed to just be away from it so i went to the one place i knew where you could sit for hours and nobody would bother you and i wrote the book and the funny thing was that when i finished i finished the book at starbucks too and i remember being all by myself like and I typed the end, which is a great moment, and I was just like, and I looked around and like, there's a barista and a homeless guy like waiting for the bathroom and me, and I was like, "This is my moment. you know <laughs> didn't make it any 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 sadder. I was very happy with that moment.
1: It won awards, like it topped the bestseller <laughs> list, it won awards, yeah. and I, I think that what people really like about it because I think the award was well, the, the Vine Award for the Vine Jewish, Award for-, for Jewish literature. Yeah, how did you get an award for <laughs> like? Was there a lot of oys in there? And no, not even
2: one. It, that's the funny thing. I I'll never understand why I won this award. But and it wasn't even like Jewish humor. It was the the literature award, and it was because because I asked them. I'm like, how in you know in the world could I have won this? Criteria is you have to be Jewish and an author. So luckily, luckily, I became Jewish. And then I wrote a funny book. And they said to me, you know, we get so many submissions that are and, and no disrespect, but it's just the same story. And it's a hardship story. And it's, you know, brutal. And there have been many, many books written, you know, about the struggle. And, and the, one of the judges said, your book was just so fun and funny. He said, there was just no chance you weren't going to win because we were all just so delighted to read something funny and like light as opposed to, you know, the hardship stories.
1: Did you know that you're funny? Nope.
2: No idea. I used to call it the cocktail party in my head because I would, I would think things, but I would never have the guts to say them. So I didn't know whether they were funny or not. And it wasn't until I worked with Tom Bergeron on uh, Breakfast Time, and even not even then, because he was so funny, and everybody on that show was hilarious. And so if I said something, and somebody laughed, I would would be so surprised. But when I started writing, when I started writing first my blog, and then these books, like the cocktail party in my head started coming out, you know, onto the paper, and that was, and, and then somebody would read it and laugh,
1: and I'd be like, oh my gosh, really? I would never say that out loud, but you know, and then you write it, you followed up with, you've been volunteered, uh-huh. which also is doing so well. It did really well. It didn't do as well as the first one, unfortunately,
2: but, uh, the sophomore book never does. So it's, it's fine. But, um, it, it, it seems
1: like there should be a TV series, Lori, come on, you're doing it right. Tell me, especially since I just finished the third book. Did you? <laughs>
2: yeah. It's coming out in July. They want to They want it. It's called uh, Yoga Pant Nation. I know.
1: <laughs> look at, Sponsored we can by Little Eleven. Each-
2: we, can, we can see each other in this podcast. So the look on your faces. I was back and forth on the title. I didn't want it. Um, I'm listening to other people's advice now. And they suggested many, many things that they think will make
1: the third book pop. So um, yeah that's that's what it's called. But seriously, is there a, a TV series in the works? Like I'm sure your agent is pitching it to people.
2: Well, I think before COVID, there was a lot of, you know, sort of simmering interest. And I actually did write a pilot for a television show. And then sort of everything hit and everything closed down. And I, I frankly haven't been focused enough to, to pursue it since then. It reminds um, me I of, know
1: where, you know, the book um, or the movie, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It reminded right. me a little bit of that.
2: Well, well, look what happened. I mean, that book was one of my favorite books of all time. And the movie wasn't that great, I didn't think. Well,
1: I, it, I didn't translate, you know? Yeah, but there was a movie. It's fun. There was a movie. True. It'd be true. fun. Then people would be pushing Gelman out of the way and say, Mrs. Hibbert, or, or no, the, Mrs. Gellman, Mrs. Gellman, we Mrs. want to Gellman. interview you.
2: Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I, you know, it, the icing on the cake is finishing the book. The cherry is, is getting it published. Anything after that is such gravy that you can't, you know, I mean, I feel like I was succeeded just by getting it out there. If it does well, that's, you know, going to be, even better, so I, I, you have to sort of temper your excitement because you know, I don't wanna put anything out there that I don't think, as I said earlier, that, that, uh, that I don't wanna jinx anything, I guess.
1: So you have had really pretty amazing life to date. You're only halfway done. What would you say has been your proudest achievement to date?
2: Okay, this is going to sound very, not insincere, but it's going to sound like a typical mom answer, but having my children and raising two good, good daughters has been absolutely the best thing I did in my life. Remember I told you that uh, converting to Judaism was one of them? Having my children converting to Judaism and randomly, and I don't know why, but this changed my life. I took a self-defense class when I first moved to New York and it just changed how I walk and how I view the world. And it taught me not to be scared. And it, does, it doesn't give you a false sense of, see, I mean, I know exactly who I am. I'm a tiny woman, but, but I felt so much better after taking that class. I can't begin to tell you.
1: So I love talking to you. I had no idea who you are today. So it, it's really fun getting to know you again. I love that you are so straightforward. I love that you do what you want to do and you don't really care what other people think that although you do keep your cocktail voice in your head until (laughs) for the most part, part, but, (laughs) but you, a lot of people would say, what are you crazy giving up your career? And you knew what was right for you. And I think, you know, for those people who are listening to this, we all kind of know what's right for us. And all the advice in the world would be helpful, but ultimately we have to make the decisions because we have to live with, you know, being at home for 14 years, right? The people who give us that advice stay home. They don't have to be at home for 14 years. So you made the right decision. You told me that the highlight of your life has been staying home with your oh, kids.
0: Definitely. So I think that's a yeah. beautiful
1: thing. And the fact that you, that you uh, are Jewish now. Like <laughs> you really like that now. <laughs> well, you're of my people. It's hilarious. Listen,
2: it's- and, I'm, and I'm super Jew. So it's really annoying to be around me like Shabbat Shalom, everybody. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, the only one that remembers the prayers over the, the you know, it's just everyone's like, oh God,
1: why did you convert? <laughs> hilarious. Lori, thank you so much. Um, we're going to wrap up today's interview and re- to remind everybody listening right now that uh, you are such an important part of this show. And I really need to hear what you think of the show. So we set up a phone line for the listeners of this podcast where you can call in and have your voice heard. Basically, you're leaving a voice message for me, and that voice message can be played on this show. So the phone it's number- It's like the speaker's corner. It's like yes, the speaker's corner yes. of, of podcast. It's the, so cool. You can call in too, Lori, 833-972-7272. I'll say that number again for those of you who are looking for something to write with because that happens. Or you can just put it into your phone, 833 972 7272. You can call in, give us feedback on the show. You can suggest someone else that you think would be a a great interview on reinvention of the VJ, or perhaps suggest questions. And I would love to hear your anecdotes. Maybe there are things about much music that meant a lot to you, something that made you laugh, something that was really memorable. Perhaps you met some of the on-air people in real life and want to dish a little bit about what happened. All that would be great. Give us a call, 833-972-7272. And if you're not a phone type person, I'm cool with that. You can reach out to me on all different social media platforms because I kind of live online. You can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, I have a Erica M Facebook page um, and all you have to do is just search my name, Erica M, and uh, you will find me online. So I want to thank everybody for listening, especially I want to thank Lori for being a part of this and for, to remember um, to all of you that next week I'll be back with another episode of reinvention of the VJ. So here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions.
0: Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020.
2: Another SoundOff Media Company podcast.